Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Hawk's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, April 1st. And today we are talking to Bill Cohan about the power struggle happening inside Disney. The ghost of Bob Iger looms large over new CEO, Bob Chapek. Bill draws parallels to Jack Welch lording over GE after he left and how that tension might foretell what could happen to Chapek at Disney. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Welcome to the powers that be. I am joined by Bill Cohan right now, who will be wearing Duke blue for the next couple of days here. And also respect to Bill for working John Shire into a lead in his <laughs> puck piece about the succession blues at Disney. Speaking of blues, uh, I mentioned that because uh, Bill is a big Duke fan, just for, just for context. But Bill... And I also worked in Roy Williams... And, you know, overseeing his successor as well, sort of sitting up in the stands every game. This is actually, I love this because when I read your piece about Bob Iger, the outgoing head of Disney, Bob Chapek, current, and the friction between them, it reminded me, as a Georgetown fan of John Thompson, who was the icon of Georgetown basketball, the coach, Hall of Fame coach, would literally just sit in the stands for the games both for his immediate successor and his son, John Thompson III. <laughs> so it's got to be kind of annoying. So how annoyed is Bob Chapek at uh, Bob Iger these days over at Disney? Iger is just sort of lurking there as a sort of eminence grease, as a larger-than-life figure, probably making Bob Chapek's life very, you know, generally kind of miserable because mm-hmm. he's not willing to kind of fade away. He's probably hearing from all sorts of people inside Disney who, you know, have one beef or another with Bob Chapek and, you know, the stock price is down. So shareholders probably aren't happy. A bunch of employees aren't happy because they staged a one day walkout related to the, you know, don't say gay legislation in Florida. You know, obviously COVID took a toll on Disney, especially the theme park business, Mm -hmm. which Chapek ran. All of that sort of combined, you know, in answer to your question is Bob Iger is probably making his successor's life pretty uncomfortable right now. You know, I was thinking about this too in the context of CNN, like Jeff Zucker just left, has a lot of very close relationships with senior producers and talent at CNN. And, and you know, his, his successor, Chris Licht, very different personality. What are the different personality types between these two? Because Iger definitely feels like a larger than life figure, you know, in the business world, whereas, you know, Chapek does not. No, I mean, I think Iger is very outgoing, media savvy, also thin skinned. I mean, uh, I remember 
uh, during the last Vanity Fair New Establishment conference. This was in 2019, October 2019. And Radhika Jones, the relatively new editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, was interviewing Bob Iger about his compensation, which at that time was, you know, roughly $70 million, which, you know, was a lot of money. And uh, Bob got pretty incensed at Radhika for asking him about his compensation on the stage in front of an audience, uh, even though, of course, that information was public knowledge. So it wasn't exactly a secret, uh, but I guess he felt that because he was Bob Iger, uh, he wouldn't be asked about something like that, like, you know, his <laughs> compensation being $70 million. Um, and so, you know, he got quite incensed at Radhika and there was a lot of back and forth. And I think it went up to the new houses and, wow. you know, Radhika, you know, kind of heard about it. Um, so uh, on the one hand, he's, um, you know, seemingly, you know, hell fellow, well met, very gregarious, but can also have thin skin. I think Chapek is much more um, internal focused, um, probably shyer, not as comfortable with the media, as ironic as that is for mm -hmm. somebody who has a large media company. And I think they're just very different personalities. You know, Chapek ran the theme park business at, at Disney, and he obviously must have run it very well. But, you know, obviously theme parks being very important to Disney, they're not central to Disney in the same way that its content businesses are, its entertainment businesses are. And so I'm sure, you know, he's kind of rubbing the creatives the wrong way. You know, he picked a fight with Scarlett Johansson. That probably upset people. He was wrong-footed on this don't say gay legislation. You know, and Bob Iger, who said he was going to leave because he said, he, you know, he, he announced suddenly before the pandemic hit that he was going to leave and then didn't quite leave as the pandemic unfolded because he quote, didn't want to leave his successor to have to deal with that situation alone, which on its face, you know, seems kind ish. But, you know, if you're, again, if you're Bob Chapek, you know, you're saying like, what the hell is this guy still hanging around the hoop? And that's why, you know, I also drew the analogy to what happened with Jack Welch and Jeff Immel at GE, you know, Jack was getting ready to leave, you know, around the April of, of 2001. And then in October of 2000, GE suddenly decides to buy Honeywell in a $40 billion deal. And, and Jack and Honeywell is getting GE stock. And, you know, the Honeywell shareholders kind of like said, you know, Jack, you can't leave because if you leave, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to GE stock. And if GE stock goes down, then I'm not going to get my 40000000000 billion. I'm going to get something less than that. So I need you to stick around. You know, next thing you know, uh, Emil has to postpone his takeover until what turned out to be four days before 9-11, September 7th, 2001. And Jack only really left then because GE ended up walking away from the Honeywell deal because the EU put up too many barriers in Jack's mind to actually owning Honeywell. And even then, Jack wouldn't leave him alone after the first quarter of 2008 because of Bear Stearns failing in March 15th of 2008 
GE, which had a very, very large uh, financial services arm that suffered uh, a lot of mark-to-market losses in the first quarter of 2008 because of what had happened at Bear Stearns, which, of course, threw everybody in the financial markets for a loop. And Jeff Immelt had said, you know, we're going to make $5 billion of net income in the first quarter of 2008. It came in at like $4.3 billion. And Jack then goes on CNBC, which, of course, GE still owned at that point. This is an amazing part of your piece. I had no idea this actually happened. Sorry to yeah, interrupt. And so on. he goes on CNBC and he says, you know, if he misses another earnings estimate, you know, quarter, like he just blew this one, I'm going to take out a gun and shoot him. And he said this <laughs> on national television. So, I mean, it's all relative. So Bob Iger is sort of hanging around making Bob Chapek feel uncomfortable, but he's not going on national TV and saying he's going to shoot him. You know, are we just in that uncomfortable transition period where the new leader is coming in, the longtime leader is going out? Or is this going to go on for a long time? I mean, because Welch just hung around for a very long time. But then again, Iger is how old? 71? 71. Yeah. But he's, you know, he's quite vigorous. Doesn't he want to, according according to Matt, he wants to own the Phoenix Suns Suns or something. He thought about running for president. I mean, the guy is quite energetic. I mean, as I said in the piece, uh, Chapik needs to, A, ignore him and kind of stop worrying about the past and the, you know, the shadow of the former emperor and just, you know, go about your business, uh, which, of course, Jeff Immel tried to do and ended up kind of not working. And here's the thing. We can see with Howard Schultz at Starbucks that at some point shareholders get fed up and they demand change and they demand a return of the king. I'm not ruling that out. I think when I was writing the piece, um, I had suggested that. I thought, you know, our fearless leader, John Kelly, thought it was way, way out there uh, on the fringe idea. So we didn't put it in. But I think that, you know, we've seen it with Starbucks. It didn't happen with GE, obviously. Uh, it, It could have. It might have. If Bob Chappick doesn't get kind of his act together anymore, blunders, then I think you could see uh, the shareholders request a return of Iger. I mean, you know, this is not the first time that that Disney, I mean, James Stewart, you know, wrote a book called Disney War. So there, there, you know, there's a precedent for internecine warfare at Disney. So I wouldn't rule that out. But Bob Chappick needs to, like, keep his eyes on the prize here and not worry about his predecessor. Final question. Is Coach K going to stay around and hang out in the stands at Cameron and lord over his successor? Or is he going to stay at home and watch on TV? You know, Coach K has those assistants very well in line. You know, if you look at other assistants and other teams, they're sort of always jumping up and sometimes they have to be held back and expressing emotions and things like that. None of those assistant coaches on the Duke team express any emotion during games or rarely do. Coach K is like a field general and he's the man. And, you know, Coach K has a big office in what's known as the uh, Schwartz Butters building. He's been appointed, you know, a professor for life or an ambassador for life at Duke. So he's going to be around, whether he's going to be yep. sitting in the stands like Roy Williams does. So I really hope Coach K can resist sitting in the in the stands at Cameron during those games, but it's literally, you know, 100 feet away from where his office is. So going to be hard. It's hard to live in the shadows. Yeah, John Thompson had an office in McDonough at Georgetown when I was there. He was gone. 
successor was coaching, but always looking over his shoulder. It's tough. All right, Bill. Good luck this weekend. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Yaffe, founding partner and Washington correspondent at your favorite publication, Puck. Let me tell you what I'm working on and what I'm hearing from sources both in Washington and Moscow. So I'm recording this on Thursday, which marks exactly five weeks since Putin invaded Ukraine. And it seems that the war has entered a new phase, which is this grinding, bloody stalemate where the armies are kind of going back and forth by a few kilometers, certain things have kind of snapped into focus and that we can say definitively now, which is that the Russian military, one, did not achieve its goals. They did not blaze into Kiev, declare victory, topple the government, and have a military parade as they seem to have been planning to do. They were not greeted as liberators. And the Ukrainian army, this is the third point I want to make, the Ukrainian army has surprised everyone by how valiantly and well they have fought. Everybody underestimated, it seems, the Ukrainian army and overestimated the Russian army. So now we have these peace talks going on. We have this vicious fighting going on on the ground in the east and the south and in the north of the country. And everybody's wondering, I'm wondering how this war ends and when it ends. What I'm hearing in Washington is that I should prepare myself for months, if not years of this, which is very disheartening and depressing. I'm also hearing that the moves that the Russian delegation announced that it would be pulling back from Kiev, that it would be focusing on the East and the Donbass, that this is basically just smokescreen and that they're pulling back, regrouping and are readying for an offensive, which is what I would have expected anyway, because, you know, the Russian side has never once kept their word. And I wouldn't believe anything Moscow says. You know, if you recall, they said many, many times that they wouldn't invade Ukraine and then they invaded Ukraine. That's just one of the many lies we've heard coming out of Moscow. What I'm hearing from sources in Moscow, though, is that Putin is increasingly boxed into a corner politically at home, too. And even though it's not a democratic system, even though, you know, there's nobody to vote him out of office or force him out of power, uh, there are kind of blocks of support that he relies on in the state and in the country and in the propaganda apparatus. And these are people who have been fanning the flames of this war for months, Uh, these kind of nationalist, kind of fascist themes of 
kind of pan-Slavic reunification and that they're ousting Nazis in Ukraine, uh, parts of the population that have really bought into this rhetoric and, and this propaganda. And when the Russian side announced after talks in Istanbul concluded earlier this week that there would be some concessions to the Ukrainian side, they were furious. And everybody I talked to said, I hope these negotiations are bullshit. I hope they don't work out. I hope these these conditions are never enforced or met. And the only thing we want to see is total victory, which means marching into Kiev, toppling the government, dismembering Ukraine, and folding the east and the center of the country into this kind of pan-Slavic union with Belarus and Russia. Uh, to me, that's very frightening. It indicates that Putin has painted himself into a trap, not just in Ukraine, but in Russia, that he has created a constituency that wants blood and will not be satisfied with anything less than the, achieving the crazy, crazy goals, the unachievable goals that Putin said he wanted to achieve in Ukraine and seems absolutely incapable of doing because of his army's inability to fight and also the Ukrainians' ability to fight. And that gets me back to what we started with, which is that it seems like this is going to go on for a really, really long time. More lives will be lost. More cities will be destroyed. And what I worry about is that the West will turn away. I think the U.S. government and Europe will continue arming the Ukrainians and helping them. But in terms of public attention, as this kind of settles in to a bloody, frozen conflict or a long, long war like we saw in Syria, that people will just say, oh yeah, the war in Ukraine, but they won't be following developments the way that we are now. This won't be front of mind for people anymore, but this will drag on and destroy Ukraine. And that's what I'm worried about given everything that I'm hearing from Washington and from Moscow. As much as I want people to pay attention and as much as I will continue covering this war and bringing you things that I'm hearing and reporting and trying to bring you the stories of the people involved in this war on both sides of the barricades or both sides of the front lines rather, and trying to make it as interesting as possible. I worry that, you know, there are things that I can't control, like what people are interested in. I think, you know, the Will, Will Smith slap I thought was such an interesting moment. And I was guilty of this too. I was so happy to talk about so about that, you know, about this moment in our culture that was serious, but mo but compared to what was happening in Ukraine seemed quite silly, but it was such a relief for 24 hours to talk to people about that as opposed to hospitals and schools getting bombed and Ukrainian citizens by the thousands getting kidnapped by the Russian government and put in concentration camps, essentially, in Russia. And I think there will be more and more stories like that, that I personally will also love to get distracted by, because it is very hard to watch a war day in and day out and feel heartbroken and powerless by. But I'm going to keep trying. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. 
If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.